0: This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Hey there, and welcome back to a very special Sounds Curious podcast. The podcast for you, our adventurous listener. And listeners, this time we're going to do something I've been wanting to do for a very long time, which is release an episode right around the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, celebrating a very old tradition, which really should come back, which is the Victorian tradition of telling ghost stories this time of year, of sitting around a fire Certainly this was a tradition in earlier cultures around Yule, which is the holiday on the winter solstice, and that time of year was seen as one in which the veil was very thin between this world and the next, if you will. So Charles Dickens and his Christmas Carol, uh, one of our most famous holiday ghost stories, was not really that original in terms of telling a ghost story of the holidays, and particularly telling a ghost story with a kind of message, one of uh, looking inward and facing up to oneself, and certainly in the case of the protagonist in Charles Dickens' a Christmas Carol, uh, the now infamous Ebenezer Scrooge. In the case of Scrooge, finding that uh, one needed to develop some compassion. And certainly that's a wonderful message at this time of year so i'm gathering up yet more threads from recent episodes and celebrating field recordings and certainly one of my favorite sources radio Appery. Uh and again in a sort of tribute to the geomixer function i am telling aloud a victorian ghost story that is accompanied by a little bit of original music and a lot of field recordings now I have chosen this one, the story is called The Goodwood Ghost, and it's a very classic tale. I found it over at, I think, a website called Ghosts and Stories, under Victorian Ghost Stories, but it's also over at Bartleby.com as a publication in a book of other Victorian ghost tales. It's listed as being doubtfully attributed to Charles Dickens, and Honestly, having read it, I, it doesn't read like Dickens, but it does contain sort of the most wonderful kernels of a good holiday ghost story, which is setting a cold winter's night in a deserted place, the content, which is the backdrop of a family loss and tragedy, And then a moment of reckoning witnessed only by the dog and the listener and the protagonist of this story. And then a nice little happy ending. So yes, this particular Victorian tradition is dark, but it comes from a much older tradition in the Northern Hemisphere of sharing these tales in the wintertime as a kind of way of of remembering the various phases of life and certainly in winter when the leaves have fallen back and things stand starkly against the landscape it is a good time to reflect on mortality but hopefully not in a self-pitying kind of way but more in a time is short and life can only be good if we ourselves are good and make it so so in that spirit, in the spirit of a Victorian Christmas and the much older pagan traditions which it carries into our modern world, I give you this creepy story on a winter's evening, illustrated and sound installation by Radio Appery field recording artists, a few sound effects over at freesound.org. And the rest is taken care of by your imagination. But again, whatever holiday you celebrate here at the darkest time of year, I hope that it is warm and that it is bright and that you gather with friends and family and tell the old stories like humans have done as long as we've been human. And we'll catch you soon for another episode. The Goodwood Ghost My wife's sister, Mrs. M, was left a widow at the age of 35, with two children, girls, of whom she was passionately fond. She carried on the draper's business at Bogner, established by her husband. Being still a very handsome woman, there were several suitors for her hand. The only favored one amongst them was Mr. Barton. My wife never liked this Mr. Barton, and made no secret of her feelings to her sister whom she frequently told that Mr. Barton only wanted to be master of the little haberdashery shop in Bogner. He was a man in poor circumstances, and had no other motive in his proposal of marriage, so my wife thought, than to better himself. On the 23rd of August, 1831, Mrs. M. arranged to go with Barton to a picnic party at Goodwood Park the seat of the Duke of Richmond, who had kindly thrown open his grounds to the public for the day. My wife, a little annoyed at her going out with this man, told her that she had much better remain at home to look after her children and attend to the business. Mrs. M., however, bent on going, made arrangements about leaving the shop and got my wife to promise to see her little girls while she was away. The party set out in a four-wheeled Phaeton, with a pair of ponies driven by Mrs. M, and a gig for which I lent her the horse. Now, we did not expect them to come back till nine or ten o'clock at any rate. I mention this particularly to show that there could be no expectation of their earlier return in the mind of my wife to account for what follows. At six o'clock that bright summer's evening, my wife went out into the garden to call the children. Not finding them, she went all around the place in her search till she came to the empty stable. Thinking they might have run in there to play, she pushed open the door. There. Standing in the darkest corner, she saw Mrs. M. My wife was surprised to see her, certainly, for she did not expect her return so soon. But, oddly enough, it did not strike her as being singular to see her there. Vexed as she had felt with her all day for going, and rather glad in her woman's way to have something entirely different from the genuine casso's belly to hang a retort upon my wife said well Harriet I should have thought another dress would have done quite as well for your picnic as that best black silk you have on my wife was the elder of the twain and had always assumed a little of the air of counselor to her sister Black silks were thought a great deal more of at that time than they are just now, and silk of any kind was held particularly inconsistent wear for Wesleyan Methodists, to which denomination we belonged. Receiving no answer, my wife said, Oh well, Harriet, if you can't take a word of reproof without being sulky, I'll leave you to yourself. And then she came into the house to tell me the party had returned, and that she had seen her sister in the stable, not in the best of tempers. At the moment, it did not seem extraordinary to me that my wife should have met her sister in the stable. I waited indoors some time, expecting them to return my horse. Mrs. M. was my neighbor, and, being always on most friendly terms, I wondered that none of the party had come in to tell us about the day's pleasure. I thought I would just run in and see how they got on. To my great surprise, the servant told me they had not returned. I began then to feel anxiety about the result. My wife, however, having seen Harriet in the stable, refused to believe the servant's assertion, and said there was no doubt of their return, but that they had probably left word to say they were not come back, in order to offer a plausible excuse for taking a further drive and detaining my horse for another hour or so. Mr. Pinnock, my brother-in-law, who had been one of the party, came in, apparently much agitated. As soon as she saw him, and before he had time to speak, my wife seemed to know what he had to say. What is the matter, she said. Something has happened to Harriet, I know. Yes, replied Mr. Pinnock. If you wish to see her alive, you must come with me directly to Goodwood. From what he said, it appeared that one of the ponies had never been properly broken in, that the man from whom the turnout was hired for the day had cautioned Mrs. M, respecting it before they started, and that he had lent it reluctantly, being the only pony to match in the stable at the time, and would not have lent it at all had he not known Mrs. M to be a remarkably good whip. On reaching Goodwood, it seems, the gentlemen of the party had got out, leaving the ladies to take a drive round the park in the phaeton. One or both of the ponies must have taken fright at something in the road. For Mrs. M. had scarcely taken the reins when the pony shied. Had there been plenty of room, she would readily have mastered the difficulty. But it was in a narrow road where the gate obstructed the way. Some men rushed to open the gate too late. The three other ladies jumped out at the beginning of the accident, but Mrs. M still held on to the reins, seeking to control her ponies, until, finding it was impossible for the men to get the gate open in time, she too sprang forward, And at the same time, the ponies came to smash on the gate. She had made her spring too late, and fell heavily to the ground on her head. The heavy, old-fashioned comb of the period with which her hair was looped up was driven into her skull by the force of the fall. The Duke of Richmond, a witness to the accident, ran to her assistance, lifted her up and rested her head upon his knees the only words Mrs. M. had spoken were uttered at that time. Good God, my children. By direction of the Duke, she was immediately conveyed to a neighboring inn where every assistance, medical and otherwise, that forethought or kindness could suggest was afforded her. At six o'clock in the evening, the time at which my wife had gone to the stable and seen what we now knew had been her spirit, Mrs. M, in her sole interval of returning consciousness, had made a violent but unsuccessful attempt to speak. From her glance having wandered round the room in solemn, awful wistfulness, it had been conjectured she wished to see some relative or friend not then present. I went to Goodwood in the gig with Mr. Pinnock and arrived in time to see my sister-in-law die at two o'clock in the morning. Her only conscious moments had been those in which she labored unsuccessfully to speak, which had occurred at six o'clock. She wore a black silk dress. When we came to dispose of her business and to wind up her affairs, there was scarcely anything left for the two orphan girls. Mrs. M's father, however, being well-to-do, took them to bring up. At his death, which happened soon afterwards, his property went to his eldest son, who speedily dissipated the inheritance. During a space of two years, the children were taken as visitors by various relations in turn, and lived an unhappy life with no settled home. For some time, I had been debating with myself how to help these children, having many boys and girls of my own to provide for. I had almost settled to take them myself, bad as trade was with me at the time, and bring them up with my own family. When one day business called me to Brighton, the business was so urgent that it necessitated my traveling at night. I set out from Bognor in a close-headed gig on a beautiful moonlit winter's night when the crisp frozen snow lay deep over the earth and its fine glistening dust was whirled about in little eddies on the bleak night wind driven now and then in stinging powder against my tingling cheek warm and glowing in the sharp air I had taken my great bows short for Botswain company. He lay, blinking wakefully, sprawled out on the bare seat of the gig beneath the mass of warm rugs. Between Little Hampton and Worthing is a lonely piece of road, long and dreary, through bleak and bare open country, where the snow lay knee-deep, sparkling in the moonlight, It was so cheerless that I turned round to speak to my dog, more for the sake of hearing the sound of a voice than anything else. Good bows, I said, patting him. There is a good dog. Then suddenly I noticed he shivered and shrank underneath the wraps. Then the horse required my attention, for he gave a start and was going wrong and had nearly taken me into a ditch. Then I looked up, walking at my horse's head, dressed in a sweeping robe so white that it shone dazzling against the white snow, I saw a lady, her back turned to me, her head bare, her hair disheveled and strayed, showing sharp and black against her white dress. I was at first so much surprised at seeing a lady so dressed, exposed to the open night, and such a night as this, that I scarcely knew what to do. Recovering myself, I called out to know if I could render assistance, if she wished a ride. No answer. I drove faster, the horse blinking and shying and trembling all the while. His ears laid back in abject terror. Still, the figure maintained its position close to my horse's head. Then I thought what I saw was no woman, but perchance a man disguised for the purpose of robbing me, seeking an opportunity to seize the bridle and stop the horse. Filled with this idea, I said, Good bows, high, look at it, boy. But the dog only shivered as if in fright. <coughs> then we came to a place where four crossroads meet. Determined to know the worst, I pulled up the horse. I fetched Bose, unwilling out by the ears. He was a good dog at anything from rat to a man, but he slunk away that night into the hedge and lay there, his head between his paws whining and howling. I walked straight up to the figure, still standing by the horse's head. As I walked, the figure turned. and I saw Harriet's face as plainly as I see you now. White and calm, placid, as idealized and beautified by death. I must own that, though not a nervous man, in that instant I felt sick and faint. Harriet looked me full in the face with a long, eager, silent look. I knew then it was her spirit, and felt a strange calm come over me, for I knew it was nothing to harm me. When I could speak, I asked what troubled her. She looked at me still, never changing that cold, fixed stare. Then I felt in my mind it was her children, and I said, Harriet, is it for your children you are troubled? No answer. Harriet, I continued, if for these you are troubled, be assured they shall never want while I have power to help them. Rest in peace. Still, no answer. I put up my hand to wipe from my forehead, the cold perspiration which had gathered there. When I took my hand away from shading my eyes, the figure was gone. I was alone on the bleak snow-covered ground. The breeze that had been hushed before breathed coolly and gratefully onto my face, and the cold stars glimmered and sparkled sharply in the far blue heavens. My dog crept up to me and furtively licked my hand, as who would say, good master, don't be angry. I have served you in all but this. I took the children and brought them up till they could help themselves.